Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with poet and visual artist Jen Bervin about one of the most unique and remarkable books, but also one of the most unique and remarkable careers of a living artist today. I'd been hoping to interview Jen for years now, and we'd been corresponding over that time, and something finally brought her to Portland for the interview, and I'm really excited to share it with you. But before we begin, I I wanted to talk about another book that arose from this podcast. Many of you have listened to the three conversations with Ursula K. Le Guin, a conversation each in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. At the end of our last conversation, I said to her, I can't imagine who else I could have done this with, three deep dives into each of the three genres. Who else had so many books in each and such a sustained engagement in each over time, I was thinking. And her immediate response was, why don't we make a book out of it? And that book came out a month ago now from Tin House Books called Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing. And yet while it began with these three podcast conversations, It is a very different reading experience in a couple of regards. Ursula and I spent quite a bit of time choosing and interweaving excerpts so that when she talks about the rhythm of Virginia Woolf or Tolkien's prose, you get examples on the opposite page. When she talks about diagramming a sentence, we diagram one from George Orwell. And when she's discussing her own work, we chose and wove in her own poems, a translation of hers, excerpts from her essays and speeches. And in addition, we each wrote original material. I contextualized the circumstances of each of our three meetings and my understanding of Ursula's relationship to the specific genre that she's going to talk about. And she wrote this really insightful and also very funny introduction called Fear and Loathing in the Interview, where she looks at all the ways interviews can and have gone wrong for her and the types of conversations she particularly loved having. On top of it all, Tin House Books made it into a beautiful object to hold and behold, so I hope you'll check it out. And one more thing before we begin, we're also on the last box of Jesse Ball's fantastic, co-written, out-of-print, illustrated book, Vera and Linus, a book which Publishers Weekly said, the light touch and offic archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. These are probably some of the last copies of the book around, as the book is not only out of print, but the Icelandic press that made them no longer exists either. So you can find out how to get a copy of that book, Vera and Linus, by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. There you'll also discover the bonus archive material from each guest as well. And if Jesse Ball's book doesn't tickle your fancy, I also have a small number of copies of the Ursula book that I could send in instead, as well as a couple copies of upcoming guest books, Sheila Hetty's new book, Motherhood, uh, Molly Crabapple's new uh, co-written illustrated book, Brothers of the Gun, about the Syrian war, and more. Enjoy today's program. 
stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the artist and poet Jen Bervin. Jen Bervin's work often involves a combination of text and textile, weaving together art, writing, science, and archival research into one of the most unique bodies of work in contemporary writing or visual art today. She's the author of 10 books, books that include one of the canonical texts of erasure poetry, Nets, an engagement with Shakespeare's sonnets published by Ugly Duckling Press, and of which Paul Oster says, Jen Bourbon's Nets has reimagined Shakespeare as our true contemporary. Her other books include The Gorgeous Nothings, Emily Dickinson's Envelope Poems, co-edited with Marta Werner, Out from New Directions. The Gorgeous Nothings was named a Best Book of the Year by The New Yorker and the Times Literary Supplement was a finalist for the Poetry Foundation's 2014 Pegasus Award for Criticism, and by foregrounding the visual art component of Dickinson's poetry, has played a crucial role in our ongoing reevaluation of Emily Dickinson's writing on its own terms. As Ben Lerner said in The New Yorker, this exquisitely produced book, lovingly curated by Bervin and Werner, allows you to encounter Emily Dickinson's envelope poems in full-color facsimile for the first time. It's an experience suspended between reading and looking, of toggling between those two modes of perception, and it thoroughly refreshes both. Jen Bervin's large-scale art installations include River, a project 10 years in the making of a hand-sewn geocentric model of the Mississippi River in silver sequins, as well as the Dickinson Composite Series, a series of large-scale embroideries that, as an act of mending and restitution, depicts with cotton and silk thread the variant words and variant marks that we've come to realize are so vital to Dickinson's poetics, but which were regularly omitted along with her preferred line breaks in the reading editions of her poems. Jen Bourbon's work has been exhibited nationally and internationally and is held in more than 30 collections, including those of Yale and Stanford Universities, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and the J. Paul Getty Museum. Bourbon is the recipient of many awards and honors, including an Asian Cultural Council Fellowship, the Rauschenberg Residency, the Fit Artist in Residence at Brown University, and a Creative Capital Grant. And she's here today to talk about Silk Poems, which debuted as an exhibition at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art in 2016, and which was released as a book of poetry from Nightboat Books in 2017, and which Publishers Weekly calls one of her finest achievements to date. 
Terence Hayes says this of silk poems. Read Jen Bourbon's fascinating silk poems a hundred times and you will be given a hundred gifts. This sensational book addresses both the past and the future, art and science, the earth and the stars. Everywhere Silk Poems is in incomparable conversation with us. And Mary Rufel adds, Jen Bourbon's work, all of it, engages the eye, the hand, the ear, and the mind. Her artistry is vast and inclusive by finesse and intelligence, by curiosity, forbearance, and vision. She knows the unexpected wonder of pattern is everywhere and that the smallest detail contains enough energy to spawn a universe. I think they should send her into space, if it were not for the fact her work has already sent us there. Her poems in themselves, those exhilarated fragments, are the purest form of the art itself. They contain the innate inner gradients of whatever takes our breath away. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jen Bourbon. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, I would love to just start with the incredible origin story. Maybe we can... It feels like it really informs the reading of the of the book to sort of know how you how you came to it. Uh, so maybe we can start with how this became a project for you, and then how it evolved into to what we have now. Well, it became a project very casually. Um, I would say it, it wasn't a project to begin with. It was just a, a question about what was happening at the Tufts University lab. Uh, Theo Amanetto and David Kaplan were working with liquefied silk. And what interested me about it was its biocompatibility. Silk is 100% biocompatible with our bodies. Any place in the body, it can be used optically. Um, it can be nano-patterned. Uh, the instance that I was excited about when I visited the lab, I mean, they were working on a huge range of things and continue to. Uh, but the instance that really struck me was a, a nano-patterned uh, optical silk biosensor, so made from liquefied silk. And um, they were developing it as something you could implant under the skin. So by biocompatible, you mean that our bodies aren't going to reject it. Exactly. No matter where it's put. Exactly. But tell us a little bit what a biosensor is, and then perhaps you can also just explain what nanopatterning is also, <laughs> so that people know why that would be intriguing to you as, yeah, as a writer. Absolutely. Um, so biosensors, um, I guess one, one of the sort of most recognizable form of a biosensor today would be like a Fitbit or something that's reading um, on the body and communicating technologically. The kind of biosensors that um, that I encountered at Tufts were very, I mean, I want to say they're very simple. They weren't, but um, it was a, a nano-pattern surface. So this is very, very small-scale patterning, like something you'd see on the surface of a butterfly wing. Mm. You know, the, the way that nano-patterning was explained to me by Theo Amanetto was... Um, a blue butterfly wing that looks blue, but um, structural blue and not pigmented blue um, is a result of nano patterning on the surface. And if you were to drop a little bit of acetone on the wing of that blue butterfly, um, it would go clear in that place until the acetone dried. And in that way, the nano pattern surface makes it a sensor for 
acetone. So it reads acetone on the surface. Okay. Uh, the, the, the biosensor, the silk biosensor works in a similar way. It's made from liquefied silk, nano-patterned. Um, and how, do you, how did you make the leap conceptually or inspirationally from nano-patterning to poetry? Like, wh- wh- how did that come occur to you in the process of going there with this open question about silk in this new medical uh, arena? Well, it came from the context of the sensor. So when I f- saw the prototype in Fio's office, uh, it's a because of the way it's patterned, you can project through it with fiber optic light and actually read an image um, with light on the wall. So I could see what was on the sensor, not with the naked eye, but by projecting it. And I saw the Tufts logo and uh, various forms of clip art. And, and I thought, well, as a, as a proof of concept, it's you know perfectly reasonable. But when I was thinking about what that sensor was um, being developed to do, which was to go under the skin and um, be a kind of a visual monitor through the skin for blood levels or uh, blood sugar or something that would be read daily. Um, I was, it, it really gave me pause. I thought that that's a, that's a really significant reading space. It's a, it's, it's a significant space of imagination. And a person who's monitoring their health that closely um, needs a lot of things aside from just monitoring. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, the sort of thing that poetry and art can respond to very yeah. agilely and in a very interdisciplinary, fluid way. And so the, the idea to write the poem in the biosensor really came from wanting to insert a form of care and a, um, a depth of attention to the material, to cultural contacts of silk and health. And I, I, I love that the poem is addressed to the person who has the poem inside of them. And that the the speaker of the poem is the silkworm. I think that is so beautiful. And I um, I just wanted to ask you about if you felt like the silkworm had particular insights around mortality. <laughs> Massive insights. <laughs> I mean, uh, silkworm's life cycles are pretty short. You know, thirty days roughly, and they go through within that life cycle. They go through a lot of transformation, like five instars or um, kind of cycles of um, gorging themselves on leaves, uh, pause or diapause, which I refer to as sleep sometimes in the poem. And then they wake up, they shed their last skin, and they their new skin looks different each time. So it's um, their their rate of transformation is really just astounding. And I felt like um, within their life cycle, they understand a lot of living and dying, and then they live and die a lot. And it's a, it's a culture that's been going 5,000 years. Yeah. So that's, I started to think about the silk, silkworm life cycle as 5,000 years rather than the 30-day. Well, and if we think of the, the voice of the poem coming from the silkworm with this u- unique um, insight into mortality, it seems like, at least historically, you mentioned that the earliest human function of silk fabrics was wrapping children's bodies in tombs. Mm. And then I was just having a conversation with Forrest Gander and, and, and preparing for that conversation. Uh, one of his books talks about how in Pueblos in Mexico, if a child dies, um, they'll put silk over his face mm. or her face mm. to um, 
believing that worms will recognize themselves and not then eat their face. Uh, but this connection to, to death seems like something that we've recognized around silk. Mm-hmm. Is that, does that seem right to Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Um, that it's not just imagining uh, the silkworm perspective, but somehow we have connected silk in, in a way to the funereal rite in some fashion, historically. Perfectly astute, as always. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I, I wonder if we were to take that step a step further, what are your thoughts on on poetry with regards to death? I mean, on the one hand, it feels like people always lament it as a marginal art. And then on the other hand, it feels like even people who maybe are scared of poetry crave it to mark... Um, various important moments of their life. Do you, do you feel like there's some sort of um, resonance between putting a poem in spoken by a silkworm versus a personal essay? Well, I think you're, you're exactly right. They are essential, and we realize how essential they are when uh, life and, well, living and dying gets to the space of the essential. Um, so when someone's very ill or, you know, when we have a, uh, you know, a, a really deep cultural moment that needs to be addressed, people always look to poems. They're always, you know, seeking them out. Uh, someone gets married, someone yeah. is born, someone dies. You right. Know, so that, it's not just death, but it's, yeah. it somehow is marking the passing of time in some way. Absolutely. Or the important occasions in our lives. Yeah. Or or the sort of unspeakable occasions in our lives when we're just you know deeply lonely or that's uh, what I wonder if it is something about the unspeakable because language sort of might fail in capturing those moments but poetry sort of allows the failure or the unspeakability in a way that maybe a narrative wouldn't absolutely I feel like it's at the edge of that yeah um, and is is the Silk Poems project in conversation with any history of poems in or on the body um is there a tradition around that of i i i wonder if pre-medically if there's Uh, implanted if there's any sort of implantedness of things or or hidden poems in in the history of 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 this i mean not necessarily poetry per se but uh, definitely the west african talisman and and that art influenced how i thought about so poems, um, this sort of secret text on the body, and even in form, in some ways, the sort of the deeply crenellated folds of a talismanic text hid inside of an object, they mirror the kind of um, folding in the beta sheet of the silk DNA. So I started to think about those in relation to each other. Yeah, um, and and if we think of this as a talisman, so this person who's ill is receiving a biosensor, which is hopefully going to monitor their health, but also receiving this poem written by a, a silkworm who's imparting wisdom to them. Um, it's a layer of protection. Uh, and it's a carry, uh, you've mentioned it as a, as a carrier of a cultural history. Mm. You mentioned it at the beginning here. So it's a tiny sensor, and you've also pointed out at the same time the Silk Road spanned a quarter of the equator. So can you can you talk to us a little bit about some of that cultural history that you hope 
is imbuing this talisman with a certain power that isn't simply the medical power? Absolutely. I think I think that the, that space of monitoring can be a very lonely, very anxious space. And I think there's something unique to Silk that it's uh, so international. It's it has such longevity, and uh, and it for me it, it's it places in that context a sense of um, a withness. You know that there is this very deep, very old, um, extremely nuanced history and culture that goes with this material um, that accompanies this little tiny sensor under yeah. the skin. And that's all, you know, the material, which is so simple, it's just protein and water, is a carrier for that culture. So I wanted, I wanted the poem to, um, to share some of that. And because sericulture starts in China, I wanted the bulk of, or the sort of center of gravity of the cultural aspect of the poem to really stay there, read there, speak there, um, and think there. So, uh, well, I've, before I uh, sort of engaged with this project, uh, of course, I thought of China. I think a lot of people would think of China, but the more that I looked at what you did, the more you really realize uh, how much of it is outside of China. Also, can mm-hmm. can you speak to um, some of the other influences or other places that you went. Like I, I, I discovered, for instance, in watching some of the videos that the Caucasus Mountains were the site of, of making of silk for most of Europe. Mm-hmm. So even though China we think of as the source, it, it's the source in China, but not necessarily in other places. Right. Uh, everyone learns sericulture from China, but I think now the largest producers of silk are India, Brazil, and, and China. Um, I visited seven countries, 30 different sites, um, Turkey, Georgia in the Middle East, um, Italy and France and Europe, China, Japan, and then various sites throughout the U.S. And, and when you say sites, we're talking a wide variety of yeah. types of places. <laughs> so what would be like the two ends of that? So yeah. one, would I'm guessing, would be places where silk is farmed, sericulture sites, right? Right, right. And then what, what would be something that would seem really different than going there? I mean, well, I, st- I would start in places where I've researched before, like the Rati uh, textile library at the Metropolitan Museum was uh, a really good logical first place to start because Rati uh, is founded in Como, in, in uh, Lake Como in Italy, uh, which was a, a site for silk primarily printing at this point. Um, but I also needed to know how things like nanopatterning come to be. And so I visit, you know, like the Stanford nanofabrication facility mm-hmm. just to learn, <laughs> to get up to speed. Um, and then a lot of silk museums in, in China and Japan. Um, they're so obvious uh, if you grew up in those cultures, but you know, as a as a person visiting from Brooklyn, uh, I'd get questions like, "Don't you have silk museums in the U.S.?" Hmm. <laughs> That's interesting. It's, and it, it yeah. you know, it, I think for especially, I mean, a lot of people I've talked to raise silkworms, you know, f- as a class project, like the same way that you know, as a kid growing up in Iowa, we plant a pea seed in a milk carton. Right. I mean, it was just a thing that everyone did, did as it. part of their huh. uh, elementary school education. So there's a most people have a very clear memory yeah. of that process. 
So, so not only does the poem come from the voice of the silkworm, but you've said, and you mentioned this briefly about the beta sheet, uh, which I'd like to lean into a little bit. You said that the silk, the properties of silk, or you wanted silk in its essence to inform the structure of the poem. So tell us the ways in which silk informs the structure of silk poems. Uh, and, and, and part of that might be just unpacking for us what some of the terminology is around the ways you've seen these microscopic, macroscopic resonances. I'd love to. Uh, so at the DNA level, the, the building block um, of silk is just protein and water. Um, and we're talking about, so there, silk has two parts to it, the fibroin and the saracen. And when it's made in the body of the silkworm, it's coming out of their, you know, the silkworm glands. So two little glands with fibroin are coming from either side of the body. And then in their spinneret, they combine with saracen, which is kind of like a glue, a gummy glue coating. And um, the saracen is used in things like fish flakes for, uh, or like fish food flakes. Uh. You know, so you find it uh, in some things you might have touched or seen in your life. Um, and fibroin is usually separated out, or at least it is in at Tufts, um, in this reverse-engineered state. So going back to the gland of the uh, the little silkworm, mm -hmm. and uh, I, you know, I I didn't know how I was going to write the poem. I didn't know what it would contain. I knew what I wanted to think about, or or ask, or go in search of. But I mean, I knew almost nothing about what I would do before I did it. So I was really looking um, seriously to try to figure these things out. Uh, so like the, the DNA uh, self-structures as a beta sheet, and that looks a lot like a weft thread in a weaving. When the, when the um, so it snakes back and forth, or it can be likened to um, a form of writing called a bostrophodon, where you have alternating lines going left to right, right to left in elegiac couplets in ancient Greece when Greek and Phoenician were kind of mashing up as languages. Uh, so originally, when I first started, I thought I wanted to do something with the bostrephodon because it had this relationship to the beta sheet. And then I got a little further into the research and realized that the silkworm, when it writes its cocoon, is using this snaking back and forth pattern, this sort of like infinity-like looping drawing and um, that all silkworms do that. Yeah. And so you have this sort of collapse of scale between the tiny, tiny DNA beta sheet scale, the filament scale. And, uh, and then I, the, the piece that I didn't really have until almost the, like, the, the exact window where I started writing the poem is that that, that line, what I'd been imagining as, as a single line was actually collapsing down to a strand um, of a six-letter and jammed column of text. So um, that six-letter and jammed part comes from the genome sequence. There's a six-letter repeat in the genome that makes it very stable. And um, so I imagine the poem as a kind of a column, and then that column extruded out into this snaking silkworm filament shape. And, uh, and I think that really came from an experience I had in Turkey at the Topkapi Palace of looking at um, uh, Islamic manuscripts. And you know, when you look at the, the image of the manuscript, you have this collapse of scale from something that looks like a letter that's made of lots and lots and lots of letters, you know, so, or something like a decorative border that's made up of 
uh, finer and finer language. So, uh, you know, it's too, it, it, I, I'm sorry to be going in all sorts of different directions, but that, I feel like that's the kind of thinking that I needed and to when, use in making the poem. Yeah, and, and when you look at the, the pattern on the biosensor, it looks like the, the movements on the cocoon of the, of the movement of, of the silkworm. Yeah. And you might not know unless you, you can magnify enough that that thread you're seeing is actually the six-letter columnar poem itself. Exactly. I love that. So uh, when, it, when it was um, on view at Masmoka, you could read the poem through the microscope. So you could move the stage of the microscope around on the XY axis and read at various points in the poem. So you could see letters. You could read. It's kind of hard to read in a six-letter and jammed strand with no spaces. So you don't know where the words break and right. where the lines break. So. Well, I want to I go a little further into this mirroring of the microscopic and macroscopic of the small and the large, because I see this in your other projects too, like perhaps most obviously the river, um, which is in a fixed relationship to the Mississippi River, and one inch of your river corresponds to one mile of the Mississippi River, mm -hmm. and also that it took the same amount of time to sow each section of the ri river as it would to walk that section of the river. Um, and you've talked about the river as the spine of the country like the spine of a book. So we get all of the this small and large, um, much like we do with the DNA, mimicking weaving, mimicking the movement of the silkworm. Um, and it made me think of ideas that I think are shared in Western esoteric traditions and in Chinese mythology of as above, so below, or as in heaven, so on earth. And for instance, I think like in Chinese acupuncture, a lot of the points have the same names as stars. And so if you were like doing pre-Maoist acupuncture, if you're doing it from the shamanic tradition, you'd, you would be seeing yourself regulating the, the celestial on the human body as the sort of like the map of the sky is, is, is the human also. Um, so I guess I was just wondering what is attracting you to that relationship to scale that we see reoccur in your work? Mm. Oh, that's such a beautiful reading of it. Uh, I, I I don't know. I just love that zooming in and zooming out, and um, just what what it, how it makes the mind flex to do so. I recently had the opportunity at Northwestern to look at one of the sequins from the river in an electron microscope, mm. uh, so a SEM microscope, and uh, it was this really wonderful experience of getting to see you know this little tiny object a single sequin that i've been sewing millions of you know for i guess 12 years now total um at that scale they look like little volcanoes you know and on the they look geological and um And also, I mean, in some ways, it, it for me, it got at the fundamental mystery of, you know, what what is this object? What is it made of? I don't know anything about this particular odd little sequin. It's foil stamped. It's backed with cloth. Um, there are no other sequins like it that I've been able to find. So I had questions about how it was going to act in time. 
So I do have these questions about time and about scale that recur in multiple projects. Um, so I learned that the sequin is mostly silver on its surface. Um, but when you look at things through the SEM microscope, they're read by the periodic table of elements. So you can really see exactly which elements in the periodic table occur in your um, in your samples. And I learned wow. that um, chlorine is deposited by the human hand. So I'm now thinking about touch differently. Oh, wow. It's like that's our trace. That's our human trace on an object. Um, I wouldn't have known that before that. This isn't really an issue around scale, but it is around this sort of harmony. When In one of the videos, when you're visiting a sericulture site, one of the farmers I don't know if you call them farmers. Do you yeah. call them farmers? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was talking about how they would take the silkworm feces and they would feed it to feed the sheep in the winter. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then the sheep feces would fertilize the mulberry trees, which were the food source of the silkworm. So you get this self-consumption loop. Exactly. That feels really um, magical. In yeah. a way, there's a magic to the um, the system that they're using. Yeah. Well, I think you start to think about shit differently when you realize it's just mulberry leaves coming out of the silkworm over yeah. and over. You know, so they're makes, making little mulberry leaf pellets that, of, of course, a sheep would want to eat. <laughs> uh, but th that that uh, that farm we visited was right on a kind of river-like canal, and and Fisher was explaining to us that, you know maybe like 15 years prior the you know the shit from shanghai would be coming down that river and the fish would eat it you know mm. and it, it, that there was there was a much deeper um you know and sort of sustainable version of of cycle life cycles that and there's something it's almost uncanny about the silkworm too it seems like from what i could gather they don't they can't survive on their own. No. We're, they're completely linked into human society, essentially, mm -hmm. um, that they l eat only mulberry leaves. And then it was once believed that you had to feed leaves the same age of the worm itself <laughs> as it was growing. <laughs> it's, it's, that seems like, I mean, it almost feels like science fiction or, or, uh, or fantasy in some way. Well, if you think about a little, t I mean, the, when they're born, they're so tiny. Uh, it makes sense to serve the most tender leaves because they just don't, you know, you have to cut them really fine. They don't have the physical capacity to eat a very tough old leaf at that point. Uh, so it makes perfect sense. But they're also very ecologically sensitive. Like mm. um, when you're caring for silkworms, you can't wear perfumes or even like wash your hair with a shampoo that's quite smelly. They're, they'll It'll make them sick. Huh. So I, I do think... Um, but they are kind of, they could be potential harbingers for ecological disaster. That it might be that if we continue on our current path, we won't be able to continue to raise silkworms. They're pretty sensitive. They, they, they will read our destruction in their bodies. Wow. Well, well there, are, there are many ways in which I feel like we see the microcosm-macrocosm relationship in the actual book version of, of Silk Poems 2, which opens with the epigram by Agnes Martin, the wiggle of a worm as important as the assassination of a president. 
But one of the most striking ways we get the micro macro in the book is visually. As we progress through the book, reading the, this long form poem, there is something developing and elongating in the corner of each page, um, at, at, which isn't explained to us. At, at first, you might not notice it at all. But then at some point, you realize that this looks like the design of a, of a silkworm inscribing its cocoon. And I read that if you zoom in on the strand in the corner and enlarge it by 6,400%, you can read the text that makes up the strand. So, so tell us more about this growing silkworm strand and whether this is the, mi- this is the micro poem that we know about from the biosensor. I wanted to draw a relationship between the sensor, the poem inscribed on the sensor and the reading form of the poem in the book. And um, I wanted the book to necessarily be a unique instance of, of the work. Uh, so it's normal that I would work on any project in a range of iterations. And I don't, I'm not really a, a single work, kind of single image kind of thinker. So um, things splay out a little bit or take multiple forms. But in the book, I, I wanted um, I wanted it to be visually apparent, but not uh, overbearing to the poem. Uh, this you know what the the strand origin on the censor. So I, I was trying to think about ways to convey that um, in a way that felt a little more embodied and. That tiny image on the recto corner of the page, for me, is an echo uh, from a book that I find a little confounding by Bob Brown called Words, in which he has a tiny, 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 tiny sonnet on each of the poem pages, a different one than the one that you see on the page. Um, And it's the kind of poem that you can miss even if you're looking for it. And I love that I love the that use of the page of making things appear and reappear and disappear in plain sight. Um, so I I've been, you know, that's been something I've been thinking about for for some time and with the with that tiny um, kind of like index image that you see in the in the corner of the page that's showing you exactly where you are in the strand reading the poem. And, you know, if you had the PDF files for everyone, you could see that you are, um, you have the information uh, of the language that's on the following page. So it, it acts oh. like, a, like a Shakespearean folio convention where you have, um, you know, just the beginning half of a word printed at the bottom of the um, block of of text to help the binder collate the text. So if the binder was, say, illiterate, they could then just look at that section of text and match it up with the oh, wow. next part. That's really amazing. So tell us the considerations uh, of bringing the poem outside of the body and 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 having it appear in book form. Not the microscopic poem, but the poem, the, the long form poem in in couplets and small caps that we mm-hmm. see that is no longer a six character line. Yeah. Uh, what were you thinking of and how did you arrive at the, the form that you a- arrived at that we see as an object rather than inside? Well, I always wanted 
people to be able to read the poem and read the poem with some a little more ease than they could say through the microscope. Because even for me, I can I can hear the poem. It's still a struggle for me to read in that form. I wanted it to um, to be encoded in the body, but then to be available to a reader and. Um, and in moving from one to the other, it was kind of a form of translation um, in trying to think about how to make that leap in a way that um, communicated a lot of the ideas but didn't um, but could do something else too. And so I started to think about what the poem was. It's a love poem from the silkworm to the person. Um, so it's in couplets and um, and it's in all caps, uh, which is kind of a reference to the the genome sequencing and the way that looks. Um, but when a silkworm eats through a leaf, it doesn't take a space between words. <laughs> it just continues. So I wanted the line to be continuous and unbroken. I wanted it to look a little like the path of eating through a leaf or of a worm itself. So there's a resonance there. Um, but the experience of reading in that form without any spaces between words really slows you down. I love how the paper is so thin and semi-transparent, too. It gives the real tactile experience to reading it. I, I hear we're, um, we're now getting our paper from Library of America. Oh. So it's the same paper they use. Okay. Um, so sometimes it's called Bible paper. But Well, before I want to I wanna pivot to the voice of, of our silkworm poet. But before we do, I would love it if you would would read the first two proverbs that we have before the the poem begins absolutely it is said that silk filature began in china under a mulberry tree in a teacup resting lightly in the slender hand of the empress si ling shi a brain unfurls from the frisson tangle she reaches in begins to reel filament from the soft envelope of the cocoon that is how people like to tell it. You know the Nigerian proverb, until the lions have their own historians, history will always be told by the hunters. If you don't know it, why not? We've been listening to Jen Bourbon read from Silk Poems. I love how we get this human-centric proverb and then a proverb that suggests that a different story, a different history might emerge if, if we switched point of view. Uh, because one of the great delights of this book is the voice and personality of this silkworm poet. She's funny and she's bold and s super smart uh, and learned. Um, and she walks us through the life cycle of the silkworm and the pleasures the silkworm has each day. But she also quotes poets. She quotes C.D. Wright and Adrian Rich and ultimately makes the boldest claim, one that challenges us to consider this point of view switch in a deeper way. She argues that we shouldn't be surprised at all that a silkworm is quoting poetry because the silkworm invented language. And, and our, our silkworm poet makes a, a good argument for uh, the history of, of silkworm language maybe predating human language. So, um, so you, you mentioned, or the silkworm mentions, that the oldest record of the I Ching was a silk manuscript found in a tomb. So there's this great, I, I think there's this really delightful imaginative journey we can take of the imagining the silkworm wrote the I Ching, this, this, this book of divination and left it for us. Um, 
And then we get that the word Jing signifies the warp threads of textile, and that it's preceded by the radical for silk in, in Chinese. And that the hexagrams in the I Ching, the names of them, a lot of them, sort of mimic the life cycle of a silkworm. So there's this whole argument for, for uh, this being a silkworm written book. But then also the way, I mean, we have the origins of language and the origins of silk being intertwined, but that the silk radical appears in all of these words, paper, textile, book, compose, edit, weave, arrange, write. And so the more the silkworm sort of spells this all out for us, <laughs> the more you start to think, wow, maybe, maybe the silkworm is writing, is writing reality. Um, it's definitely... Uh a fanciful speculative yeah. take on it but once you start down that path it actually doesn't it seems almost inevitable that that could be a fact uh, I mean when thinking about the I Ching and the trigrams I really started to imagine them as leaves like either whole or eaten through hmm. and and then you know when you think about the word uh, Jing which has the character for silk in it. It, do, it doesn't even seem far-fetched at a certain point. It just seems like, well, of course there's silk in, you know, there's silk through and through. There's silk in the, um, in the ideas, in the language itself. And well, even you, uh, the silkworm mentions also oracle script. So one of the first, uh, the beginnings of language when uh, we were reading or oracular cracks within bones and, and turtle shells. And that script was called bird and worm script, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. I don't know. What, do you know why it was called that? Um, I don't. I mean, the, the, the language, uh, the characters were incised on tortoise shells um, or bones. And I mean, I started to, you know, you go down this path and you start to think, well, how is it incised? Like, what was doing the incising? And, it, and you know, when you come across a form of the language called bird and worm script, I think it's like, okay, it's the worm telling the bird what to do on the shell. <laughs> like, literally, it seems so obvious. Huh. So, like, uh, you know, oracle script seems to me, you know, when I'm just playing around in my mind as a, as a kind of a collaboration between three species. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, great. Obviously, none of this is factual. So. Right. No, I, I, but but also wonder, wondrous yeah. at the same time. So I, I've never been to a silkworm farm, but the way you describe it also feels in a way like a switch in point of view. And what I mean is, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but the, these short-lived silkworms feel so, sort of like they're being treated like royalty. And the humans are the servants. So um, their, their waste is swept away as soon as it appears. Food is constantly being provided them. And then allowing them to do what they want to do most. So eat, have sex, and weave. Um, so that in the end, the worm isn't a domesticated livestock. Uh, but instead, the human is a domestic servant. I would definitely agree with that. Is that the that's the vibe? You get I mean, at yeah. The farms? Well, I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, so I haven't visited that many sericulture farms, and and you know, I should really um, qualify that and say that um, sericulture has a very wide range of manifestations, and some of them are more like that, like the farm we visited. Um, and some of them are very industrialized and yeah. um, and pretty disgusting. So, it's it's not just you know 
that idealized version is true, but it's not universally true. Sure. And so, but um, maybe at one point, thousands of years ago, it could have been the norm. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think there is something to the fact that it's a very sensitive creature and it does require that level of sensitivity and caring for it. And just like the, I was, I was struck when I was learning how sericulture worked in the sheer quantity of leaves, like just how, you know, for 30 days you have to drop everything and just give over all of your time and energy to feed and care for these uh, voracious creatures. I mean, to, to go for, in 30 days to some form of your body that's 10,000 times bigger, that's... Uh, wow. That's pretty intense. Yeah, that's, that is intense. <laughs> so, so I wanted to um, pivot to the English from the mm-hmm. Chinese. So we have this discovery that silk, the silk radical is involved in a, a lot of words that we would associate with composing mm-hmm. and weaving. Um, but also you explore in English this connection between the word text and the word textile. And, and in much of your body of work, you've, you've explored this connection uh, between language and weaving. Um, at the beginning of an anthology that you appear in, edited by Francesca Capone, is a quote from Roland Barthes' uh, book, The Pleasure of the Text. And I'm just going to read it for a second. So he says, Text means tissue, but whereas hitherto we have always taken this tissue as a product, a ready-made veil behind which lies more or less hidden meaning, truth, We are now emphasizing in the tissue the generative idea that the text is made, is worked out in a perpetual interweaving. Lost in this tissue, this texture, the subject unmakes himself like a spider dissolving in the constructive secretions of its web. And and similarly, when you were discussing why you started weaving, you said you did so to find new terms in the vocabulary of tactile language. now, when I think of your phrase, tactile language, and Bart's phrase, text means tissue, I think of language that is embodied or corporeal, and in your case, with silk poems literally in the mm-hmm. tissue. Mm-hmm. So we have the, like, the actual, figure, both the figurative and the literal. But tell us in your own words, what is it that compels you around this, this text, textile, tissue, tactile set of associative iterations? So the the phrase tactile language comes from Annie Albers, a mid-century weaver, printmaker, artist, uh, coming out of the Bauhaus and then teaching at Black Mountain College. And her book on weaving is hugely influential to to me and to a lot of other artists and writers I know. Um, so I wanted to credit her her voice. Uh, I. I feel such a strong connection to textile uh, thinking and tradition. Um, I feel like, for me, um, what is often referred to as craft ties into some very, very deep cultural knowledge and often uh, one associated with women's knowledge. and. Uh, I like how there's an approachability in a work of art when it takes a textile form um, that's that's on some level um, like pre-thought. 
it's it's on the edge of um, knowing, speaking, reacting, and and I think that that really comes from that deep knowledge, um, and I like having some of that present and operative in the work um, when it's appropriate. Um, for me, that sort of embodied knowledge of touching. Touching while thinking Mm -hmm. is very primal. I mean, I remember being a very, very young girl and just rubbing the edge of a blanket, sort of silken, satiny edge of a blanket. And that sort of um, movement of my hands across the the cloth was a way to just think. It was like walking. It was a way to um, move thought. And um, to me, those things have always worked together. And I would imagine a different sort of thought might happen if you're attending to perception and and to tactile phenomenon. I I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to um, it's hard to get outside of your own experience and imagine how to translate how you think and perceive and feel and put things together for other people. I mean I try to evidence that in the work um, but I'm not sure I'm the best narrator of how I think because I'm I'm inside of it yeah so I try to but one thing that is interesting you, you've spoken a lot about time and there's a lot of time that passes in the creation of your projects mm-hmm. but you also talked about how with the silk poems you didn't know what you were doing so like part when you talked about pre-thought that happens with these um tactile activities, it seems like you're taking a similar approach, perhaps, that you're not allowing the mind. I mean, there's the questions that are happening. I don't know if I'm phrasing this right, but that you're sort of forcing yourself to stay in not knowing Mm -hmm. rather than knowing so something can emerge from that. that. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, I think of it as a kind of a space for coming to know. Yeah. That you didn't go to the silk lab with an with a full on agenda. No, I, I I usually go to a lab with full on questions. Right, and then I won't know till quite a bit later um, what parts of the experience will move forward in time or how. Or uh, I just trust that they'll be meaningful, useful. Um, that I'll learn something, and that's enough for that day. Right. <laughs> Um, I know this might be a stretch, but you, you quoted uh, Toni Morrison for your rid- river project, and it feels important somehow how she connects memory and imagination to the body, even though that's not the topic of what she's saying. It sort of feels like it is, and I wanted to read it and just hear your thoughts on, in, that re- in that light. So she says, you know, they straightened out the Mississippi River in places to make room for houses and livable acreage. Occasionally, the river floods these places. Quote-unquote floods is the word they use, but in fact, it is not flooding. It is remembering, remembering where it used to be. All water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. Writers are like that, remembering where we were, that valley we ran through, what the banks were like, the light that was there, and the route back to our original place. It is an emotional memory, what the nerves and the skin remember, as well as how it appeared. 
and a rush of imagination is our flooding. Mm. Such an amazing quote. Mm. But the way she says it's an emotional memory and immediately goes to the words nerves and skin makes me think of this idea of not, it's not an ignoring of the mind, but it's, it's placing the mind in a different relationship to perception, to touch, to the bodily experience of being in place. Is that, does that resonate at all with, with some of what you're? Absolutely. I have to, I want to acknowledge the filmmaker Natalia Almada, who uses that, uh, part of that quote in her first film and who's the one who shared that with me. Um, I went to a talk last week by Jason Moran, and he was talking about, um, he's a uh, pianist, jazz pianist, and uh, one of the great American artists in, in my mind. And he was talking about getting the left hand to know. Um, and he used this gesture where he slid his uh, right hand under his left hand and lifted his left hand up to demonstrate that knowing. Mm. Uh, and I, I mean, I think all musicians have that kind of embodied knowledge but I was so struck in that moment by how he represented it of like how literally like it's getting um like the knowledge inside the hand under the hand lifting the hand up and uh I mean when I hear the Tony's Tony Morrison quote about in the nerves and I think about how your body has to know something mm. for you to be able to really utilize yeah um that knowledge but I think there are a lot of different directions you can think in that quote which is you know it's so, so typical of Toni Morrison's work and yeah she's amazing she's really um, such a great but I, I I use that quote in relation to the river because I wanted that piece to really contain a lot of kinds of knowing um, and now that I'm getting ready to present it for the first time in October at the Des Moines Art Center uh, I've been thinking again about how to bring lots of kinds of knowing, lots of kinds of knowledge, lots of different stories about the river, um, perspectives on the river, into uh, the publication for that show. And mm. so that's been really fun to open it back up. It's almost like an inverted silk poems where all the research is happening at the end. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Jen Bervin about her latest book from Night Boat books, Silk Poems. So I was hoping maybe you'd read a, a longer section sure. of the book, if yeah. you didn't mind. I'd love to. Just below my mouth, my spinneret works nine or ten inches in the first minute. Sixty-five elliptical motions. My head is spinning. The brin issues in a glutinous state, hardens into lines, becomes structure. With strength, length, and luster, the fibroid strands emerge prismatic, two triangular tubes glued in Saracen. When light shines through a prism, it breaks into seven colors, a continuous spectrum with infinite possibilities. With elasticity, affinity, and the right mindset, always are easy. Once I start weaving, I can't hear. A practice is not a thing in itself. It is a way to be happy and calm in life. I write it side to side, infinity loops, figure eight spins, as much as six miles, 60 hours, three days. Sure, I count. I modulate it, slow it down, elongate the loop, concentrate on the line. 
I try not to have ideas because they're inaccurate. Instead, I try to think of the words I want to spend time with. Beta sheet, bostrephodon, weaving a weft thread, an elegiac couplet, an epitaph carved in alternating directions. To reverse the reverse becomes the work, to separate your right brain from your left and build back up, to remove specific outcomes and truly create something new. Even that word looks old. Silk, language, mediums infinitely larger than any intention. This little silk in me, polymath, string figure, present. Small wild things that shine obstinately. Hold the body free from harm. Cloth, tissue, body, issue. Here is this thing I made of myself with others alive in you. I give you my silk cocoon, this flying garment for the soul. I've drawn infinity into it. We've been listening to Jen Bourbon read from The Silk Poems. I, I love that line here, or those lines, here is this thing I made of myself with others alive in you, which on, on the most literal level is the silk biosensor, but it also feels like it's describing the act of writing and reading in a way, like the way that um, something that you've done is it, it finds its life in someone else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it's also practical, like a silkworm doesn't do much alone. It does it with other silkworms. Yeah, and I, I wanted to maybe travel down that rabbit hole because it, one of the things it implies is that this thing that I make of myself when I write is inevitably with others too, mm -hmm. not just the silkworms. Uh, it's a conversation with our contemporaries and with the writers that have shaped us. And you've borrowed and woven the lines of other people throughout this book. So we, part of what we just heard included the words of Diana Frid, Agnes Martin, and Cecilia Vicuña. Mm -hmm. And in other places we get uh, Emily Dickinson, Rosemary Waldrop, and others. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a nod to sort of the way we, we write among other people or f out of what other people have written? Oh, absolutely. And it's a nod, too, to the scientists who helped inform the poem. Fio Amanetto is quoted in that section um, where he's talking about separating your right brain from your left oh, okay. and builds back up to separate out. You know, if you want new outcomes, you have to you have to loosen that thinking yeah. in order to get oh. to them. I love that material scientists have the ability to do that. I think it's very, very difficult to do as an artist. Uh, so I aspire to it. I yeah. don't think I'm there yet, but well, there's also this idea of suspending one's tendency towards an, knowing the outcome before you've started. I, I I think that's also perhaps an idealized version of science too. Not I don't think all science is happening that way, but in the ideal form, you would think that without any pressures, the scientist would be inquiring, kind of the way you're describing your arrival in all of these places with questions more than with plans. Is, I, I would hope. You know. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things we haven't discussed yet in depth is gender. And, and you did mention um, a little bit earlier, but it feels like it's a central element to most of your projects, uh, particularly the ones that engage with weaving and interweaving. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like a coincidence that most of these voices that are woven into silk poems are women or that the silkworm poet herself is a woman. Um, and I wonder about weaving in relationship to writing in the sense that women were prohibited from engaging with, with 
language and religion or in other ways um, for thousands of years. And um, in a way, when we think about the silkworm asserting that it's the beginning the beginning of language, mm-hmm. I wonder if women in, in weaving and sewing, if that's sort of what you're asserting also. In, I mean, mm-hmm. as a way that they... Um, that they they took in and made their own. Yeah, I think a lot about forms of female excellence and um, historically channels that were open to women. Um, So absolutely. I mean, I don't think of the silkworm narrator as female necessarily. Oh, you don't? Uh, No. I mean, it's fun to hear you call the silkworm she... Um, because it's first person, you don't have to specify. Um, I mean, I definitely think it's a very queer poem and it just, uh, it was nominated for a Lambda, which made me really, really, really happy, um, to be on that list. Um, well, I also thought of how, what gets foregrounded is, is up in the silkworm cycle is giving birth, weaving and, and sewing, Mm -hmm. um, in a sense. Um, and then we think of the women who are making these objects out of the silk. So there's this sort of, again, a micro macro level yeah, around yeah. this, you, which feels very, very gendered. Absolutely. You find men and women in, throughout textile histories. Um, but it, it is one of the forms in which women can excel. And one excellent artist I've been looking at very closely is a Chinese poet, Su Wei, a fourth century Chinese poet who wrote a poem with 8,000 possible readings that was either embroidered or woven in the form of a textile in five colors um, that in the form of that poem draws from an um, astronomical gauge called the armillary sphere. So I want to, I want to go, I actually want to go in depth on this project, but before we do, I'd like to step back and, and ask about this distinction between art and craft. Mm -hmm. And whether you believe it has any validity uh, or whether you feel like the fact that, say, Suwe's poem might be considered a craft um, or that other art forms by women or even not just women, but also, say, indigenous mm-hmm. cultures um, are, are shunted into the category of craft. If that if there is something that is if there is erasure happening in that in terms of we don't have to engage with them with a certain level of seriousness because they're there versus if they were considered art or is there something truly is there a valuable distinction between the the two in your mind i think you have to raise an eyebrow anytime someone's starting to draw distinctions of category uh, because there's always a politic behind those distinctions Um, i mean even with my own work i find that when people are drawing distinctions of category that they're usually doing it to exclude me from something, mm. um, and that they're always they're always motivated. So rather than asking the validity of the category, I like to ask the validity of the motivations, and often the motivations around distinctions of craft have to do with either industrializing forms of of making, um, and therefore sort of fetishizing the handmade. Um, or they have to do with excluding work that has that kind of knowledge from um, what they're trying to frame as a dominant discourse. And um, I think it's particularly harmful in, in 
um, art making. I think that I mean, those categories are really uh, in the same way that poetry has become incredibly varied and hybrid. I think you have incredibly varied and hybrid forms of art and craft making uh, and thinking now. But when craft is edited out, uh, the motivations for that are often completely political. They're very gendered. Um, and they're cultural. I mean, if you think about um, why you would draw distinctions between art and craft, thinking and making, uh, it excludes most women. It excludes most of the world. It excludes most of what's been made through time. And it, it, you know, it leaves you with a lot of um, 20th century paintings, yeah. which are made by who? Right. <laughs> Whom? <laughs> Well, this may not be exactly the same, but I know you're you're uneasy with the term erasure being applied to you. Um, I don't know that it's being used to erase your work, but as we're talking about these cult, this cultural erasure that's happening with um, this art and craft distinction, um, it's interesting that you're called an erasure poet, or that you do erasure poetry. Um, because a lot of your work feels like it's the opposite to me. Um, it feels like you're actually foregrounding the erased. So like the variant marks of Emily Dickinson or um, erased art forms of women in silk poems and a whole bunch of other projects of yours. Uh, um, but I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that term in relationship to your work. I I would say that a lot of the work that I'm doing is either intratextual or contextual, and um, and to use the term erasure is a little misleading for that. I, I I understand that that's the way in which you know works like nets are typically referred to and framed, and sometimes I'll cite the term myself, but I don't really think that that's the spirit of what I'm trying to do. And to be fair, even with nets, you can read the Shakespeare. Yeah. So there's some erasure where it's truly you can't read it, but we're getting a layering. It made me think of a conversation, part of the conversation with Forrest Gander. We were talking about how uh, people had described some of his poems in his new collection as being accretions, mm. which is a geologic term. He used to study geology and uh, this layer of sedimentation and it feels in a, in a way like you're playing with these layers. Yeah. Which layer is going to be more uh, legible than the other? But yeah. they're all legible. Yeah, is absolutely. That, yeah, I think that's that's 100% um, true. And I, I do feel like the one of the reasons I, I love to work that way is because it, um, by drawing reference to other writers, you say, I'm not alone here. I'm not the first to do this. I'm part of a larger conversation, um, which has a dominant discourse. I mean, that was the point in working with the Shakespearean sonnets. Um, but it was also in some ways, a, 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 I was at a point of desperation of just trying to um, get my point across to writers that I was, that I understood their language, but I wasn't going to speak it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to do it differently. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anything more evident or, or um, like agreeable than Shakespeare. No one would contest that that was poetry, even though they were contesting uh, or having a harder time coming to terms with what I was presenting. Yeah. 
do you do you feel like there's a um an erasure gender component in the sense is it coincidence that with the shakespeare uh the with nets and with the desert which mm-hmm. are both engagements with the work of men the the writing of the man gets um put in the background mm. and your intervention gets brought to the foreground and in the dickinson projects mm-hmm. um you're doing a, a a sort of mending and sort of archaeology of bringing forth the things that probably in a lot of cases men had erased mm-hmm. in her, in her work and brought them to the front mm-hmm. well men and women i mean i think her That's edit- true. she had a lot of yeah. female editors they don't they don't get uh, the. They don't get a pass. They don't get no. They don't get a pass, and they also don't get as much credit as they deserve. Um, mm. Even the the editorial histories of Dickinson are very gendered. Um, I think there are some really, really interesting early works um, on Dickinson by the female editors, uh, Bianchi, in particular. I mm. think is is excellent, and uh, and I still use her work, but. But yeah, you're absolutely right that I'm I'm trying to uh, surface some things and you know kind of quiet other things. Other things, and um, it's not that I feel that that should be the the cosmic balance. It's 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 the cosmic rebalancing that mm-hmm. needs to happen. Yeah. So um, and there are many contexts in which I need to be quieter and listen. And and I think that um, you know as writers, thinkers, readers, artists, makers, we have to be sensitive to. So, so as part of your seven years of research around the globe at textile archives, biomedical labs, sericulture farms, you encountered some other interesting things, uh, a lab that is developing silk skin replacement, um, and then more recently an engineer who's using kirigami, the Japanese art of paper cutting, to help design silicon wireless transmitters. Uh, but the encounter that captivated you the most was one that you... Um, that you mentioned earlier, and it's this project with Sue Wei's uh, reversible poem, written and embroidered by her in the in the fourth century in China. So we get this intersection of of weaving and and poetry again, um, and it's one of the first, if not the first, poems by a, whim, a woman that we have. I think it's uh, well, it's one of the earliest ones I know of fourth century, but. Uh, but it's also one of the first in its form, this re- reversible poetry form. Okay. And that's a, it's a form that's uniquely and perfectly adapted to Mandarin in that you have a visual character that contains a word rather than just a single letter. So yeah. it allows you to um, read in that kind of a structure in a way that we can't really do in English. Uh, well, uh, tell us more about why this is this is your next project, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's attracted you to do a sustained engagement with it, uh, and it makes me the way the fact that you can read this poem in thousands of ways makes me think a little bit of Dickinson's variant marks, Absolutely. and but also makes me wonder like this is such an incredible poem on so many different levels. It again makes me wonder why did nobody talk about it? So uh, why wasn't why is it so recent that we're reconsidering this poem? At least that's what it feels like. So tell us a little bit both about what what is attracting you to engage with it, and and what are your theories on why um, this poem has been a quiet poem, even probably among the Chinese themselves. I think that. Um... 
questions of gender are prominent in uh, what can what's considered a classic and what's not. Um, and thankfully, there's a lot of scholarship by women that kept Suwe's poem alive. Um, either poet painters recopying her poem on scrolls, or like the first female empress of China, Wu Zetan, writing an account of the poem. Um, histories of Jin Dynasty, etc. Um, that that thankfully we have what we have on that poem, largely through the scholarship of women. And um, and yet it has a status that is, to me, just mystifying. I mean, I can't imagine anything more qualifying um, to be seen as excellent and enduring and um, essential to a cultural canon, really. Uh, so... So I think that the the sort of the the deficit of that attention was in part what drew me um but I would say that the the overwhelming uh, sense of wonder about what that work is and what it does and how it came to be and what it means and how it could be read and how it's understood today uh, yeah. I mean you have the text and textile right you have the erased history of a female artist. You have the astronomical gauge. So we the have art and science. So we have art and science and also as above, so below with yeah. the stars. And yeah. also that this is a poem. It's also a love poem mm -hmm. in a sense too. Right. Um, and then uh, you in, embarked on a translation of it at one point. Oh God. Yeah. What but, a disaster. Well, that's what I was wondering. Like <laughs> how, how, how did you come to think that that, I know other people. I think are are translating it. Yep. At some uh, yeah. is that true? Yeah. There there are um, there's a quadrant of the poem David Hinton has translated um, kind of carti cartographically in a way. Yeah. Um, I just can't think of a poem that seems less translatable. It's it's as difficult a translation problem as you could possibly come across, and it's not just that. I think that that I'm what I've come to understand is that the issues of translating that poem are not just uh, you know translation based issues; they're temporal issues. It's that we don't have the cultural understanding that we need to have to understand how to read a reversible poem from the fourth century. Uh, even classical Chinese scholars. Uh, are confounded by it. So I, I would say that, like, you know, as uh, Wen Jin, one of the uh, scholars we interviewed, says, like, it's equally confounding to all people, <laughs> no matter what their <laughs> level of expertise is. Well, it's interesting about this when we think about your, your, your starting from a place of questions, which is inevitably going to lead to some false starts or some dead ends mm -hmm. as part of the process. And you, you have this impulse to think maybe the way to go with this is to translate it and then mm -hmm. realize that's not the way to go. Or maybe that trans, the idea of translation needs to be uh, redefined. And so you've come up with a way to redefine how to translate this poem uh, involving others, kind of like that line that we ended with in the silk, in the silk poem reading. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you're, you're, you've landed on engagement with, with the poem as a project. So to put a little pressure on the translation uh, failures 
of my own. Uh, so I, I was trying to translate uh, the version of Sue's poem that I had from simplified characters. Uh, so it's just essentially mapping out character by character all the possible trans all the possible meanings for that character and then all of the possible meanings for that character in relation to the characters next to it so if you're reading from the diagonal to the right or if you're reading from the diagonal below it to the left or you know etc you know and then i realized when i was about you know i don't know 50 pages of notes in that i was i was just not only did i not have the right version of the poem at that point um, if there is a right version, but I also was working from the wrong character set. I was working from simplified. The original was in classical. You lose a lot of layers of meaning going from classical to simplified mm-hmm. characters. And, um, and it wasn't until I was a lot further into the research that I was able to pinpoint all the different versions of the poem itself. So there's no original. It was lost around the 12th century. So we have a lot of accounts of the poem. We have a lot of recopied versions of the poem but they're like they're wildly different from one to the next you know like they they might be like 50 60 percent different in placement or um character so this question of like can it be translated is gets really complicated um at the outside because there is you have that question of the missing original which a lot of translations right um have but you think of like Ann Carson with Sappho and yeah. the way she deals with it with the marks on the page right. to show where we don't have the words right. for each of those poems. Yeah. Oh I love that. I love that book. But with Dickinson we have manuscripts. We have originals to point to that we seemingly don't point to enough. <laughs> but um but f- what I came to realize really with tran- translation issues around Suwe's poem um, were so difficult and so, uh, you know, attenuated <laughs> that it wasn't going to be solved by one completely inexperienced translator or even, you know, a whole host of really experienced translators. It would just, you know, it needs a lot of attention through time from very different perspectives. And and so I, I really started to think, okay, this is definitely not research for silk poems. This is like, you know, just blew the circuits for that. Mm-hmm. It's going to be its own work. And I, so, so at that point, after, you know, two months of failure in Italy, trying to work on this translation, um, was happily defeated and saved it for later. And then um, 2013, I think, picked it up in collaboration with my partner, Charlotte Lagarde, who's a documentary filmmaker. And we worked together with Violet Dufang in Shanghai. Um, she produced the project and was instrumental in drawing all kinds of connections um, on the ground in Shanghai. We were there about three months of last year in some. And, uh, and we approached Suwei's poem from a number of different perspectives. First, from the textile. So... Um, getting at this question of the missing original and of uh, thinking about reading the poem in its in its kind of infinite possibility, we were drawing connections between textile-based time and making and thinking, um, and what it would what it would take to make a poem like this, not just to write one but to make it. And uh, we commissioned uh, Sucho embroiderer uh, to remake the 840 version and the 841 version of the poem. And 
we filmed the embroidery process, which is a reversible silk embroidery from underneath. And um, so we have hours and hours and days and days of real-time footage of the embroidery process. So you have a, you have a character coming into being from the underside. So you're seeing the side that the embroiderer is making perfectly, but can only feel. Um, and and so you have that perspective with the river project too that so the, you're seeing the river as if you were looking from within the earth up yeah. rather than down so yeah. uh, similar to this reversal of point of view in silk poems yeah i love the impossible of perspective the inside perspective yeah um with the Suez poem we're drawing a relationship between firmament um or cosmos and poem and also um time time in making and thinking and reading a poem mm. Um, and you've also been engaging various Chinese women in uh, conversations around the poem of very different backgrounds. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah, absolutely. So we did a lot of interviews. Uh, and, you know, I'm as someone who works in multiple fields, I'm sometimes frustrated with the limitations of a field. Uh, I draw a lot upon the expertise of one, but... You know, especially around literature, it feels so limiting sometimes, um, the ways in which we are willing to think through um, a particular person's work. Um, those frameworks can be so strong and so rigid at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, That's and, a good way to put it. <laughs> and so we, we wanted to get a lot of contemporary perspectives on Sui's poem, and not necessarily expert perspectives, but just ones that would think or flex or move differently around around it. And you know, as as Westerners, uh, Charlotte's French American, I'm American. Uh, it wasn't really our story to tell. I mean, it's I think it's great to ask questions and to spend deep, deep time with work, but who narrates? The poem, I don't feel like it should be me, yeah. um, and it shouldn't be Charlotte. But I, I do feel like we can, um, you know, give a frame or give a voice to other perspectives. And we were very, very, very lucky to work with Violet Dufang because she found um, just such excellent people to weigh in on the poem. And and the fact that you have, a, say, like an astrophysicist and a professor of comparative literature and a master weaver... It reminded me a little of a, of a Sophie Cal exhibition in Paris where she had been broken up by someone and she gave the letter to like an opera singer and a, a lawyer and a psychologist and they all did their own thing. So one person sang it, another person analyzed it, um, another person did a legal brief. Um, it's really wonderful, this sort of gathering around. I, I, a number of people have drawn that comparison. Oh, they have. I, yeah, I really like it. Yeah, I, I think that. I think it's, it was at the Bibliothèque Nationale too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Excellent work. Um, but I, I, I'm very grateful to the interviews because I've learned so much about the poem, and not in a way that I could research learn. For example, um, like Yulan's interview. She's the uh, algor algorithmic game theorist. Uh, she broke down her perspectives into five different structured categories based on complexity theory, based on analytic geometry, um, cryptography. You know, these are these are not there are things that I would that I might think near, but never think that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful that that her 
mind and her way of reading through Su Wei are framing the conversation. Uh, it's uh, kind of beyond my wildest dreams to... That's to amazing. So is that what we, we're going to ex- expect from you next after Silk Poems? Is, the, is this project with Su Wei's Reversible Poem? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's underway. And um, so Charlotte and I are still thinking through the, the presentation of that work and, and how we're thinking of a multi-channel installation for that work. And we're trying to really situate the experience in a meaningful way. Um, and one of the challenges of work like that is how to, um, how to invite a viewer audience member in, in ways that create ample time. Um, cause often in an exhibition, you feel like you want to float through or move through and, um, how to create the conditions where someone really wants to linger and listen and move from kind of well, did, point to point. Did people tell you what Sophie Cal did for that exhibition? Cause you're in this really old library space. It's really beautiful. And at each, and you can walk around and see things on the wall, but then there were, uh, probably a hundred or 200 places where you could sit mm-hmm. with a he- with headphones and watch, watch, um, things that have been made on, on video or audio mm-hmm. by different, different people engaging with the letter, including animals. Like there was a parrot that tears, oh, tears the letter into pieces <laughs> in a very specific way, but you could sit all alone or you could wander and there was no like there was no um prescribed way to move oh i love that either I so you that. could spend your time in one little corner too it was interesting i didn't never thought about that around time that's interesting i've only heard about the piece and read about it i've never experienced it I yeah i think we need to Maybe that's the next point of <laughs> research. Yeah. But th- that that work is next, and I'm also working on some new pieces related to SETI, my artist in res- residence with SETI uh, Institute, which stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Oh, no way. Uh, so they have a lot of affiliations with NASA, Ames, um, and scientists all over the world. It, I mean, when you hear the, the term, you you know, <laughs> I, it, most people laugh, but I mean, most things I do, most people would laugh like lesbian well, poetry. Come on. <laughs> and silkworms, they almost seem extraterrestrial. They they, they seem like they came from a, they another are. planet. They are. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm collaborating with a, an Australian artist, Fan Devi. Um, and we're, you know, we're thinking in a number of different directions. I'm, I'm going to Tasmania and Australia in May wow. to work with her. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about media rights and uh, and Chinese literati objects of contemplation, uh, in particular stone sculptures and ways in which we understand the cosmos through an object. That sounds amazing. Hopefully, I, I, I'm hoping I'm going to put out the 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 hope that in a couple of years you're back here talking about meteorites with me. I would love that. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Jen. Thank you for having me. So we're talking today to Jen Bervin about her latest book from Nightboat Books, Silk Poems. So you've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at k
kboo.fm. More of Jen Bourbon's work can be found at jenbourbon.com as well as patreon.com slash between the covers where we discuss the importance of Paul Salon's work to her aesthetic, where she reads some of Paul Salon's prose and his poetry, and then a poem of hers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found at iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.